I'm the man. <laughs> or, or as my um, as my colleague Bonnie Durant says, I'm the sage on the stage. <laughs> but as you all know, you know, well, maybe you don't know, but I'm the sage on the stage, big guru, and then I go home. <laughs> and as I've been telling people lately, when I start sharing Dharma with my wife, she says, T-M-I, too much information. <laughs> so you are, the, so this identity, this identity as sage on the stage or guru is like quicksand. It is a completely 100% unreliable refuge, unreliable source of stability and um, as is any form of narcissism, as necessary as it is to have some kind of healthy narcissism, something that reminds you that you are, uh, that you are special. Now when I looked around this evening and I said, say hello to each person who is a unique expression of life. It is true. You are just by virtue of the way that you have been forged by life, been created by everything that has ever happened over all of time. Not one person here could be any different than you are that you all have emerged from the myriad causes and conditions. If you didn't manifest the way you do, I wouldn't manifest the way I do. We are so inter, interwoven, we so, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, inter-are with everything that, um, uh, that we, um, God, if we really appreciated that, we would just bow to our bow to our own um, awesomeness, grandeur, in that we are part of the creative display of life. And that's, it's amazing. We would also be struck by the non-personal nature of that unique expression. The fact that each of our individual, each individual is made up of all of these non-personal influences. Right down to the thoughts that we think, the habits that we manifest, the way our senses work, the shape of our body, the color of our hair, the color of our skin, the interests, the everything is made up of non-personal elements. I find that that puts me into a state of awe. And it just reduces a little bit the, the maniacal sense of, of personalizing, of making everything about me, and making everything seem that it's making me have that predominant view that I am my fault. As my friend Wes says, as you've probably heard me talk about before, he says, you are not your fault. 
And that this notion of, well, first, the fact that we think that we are at fault is because of case of mistaken identity as somebody uh, who is a problem to be solved. And that whole notion is only the notion that arises when we have uh, a case of mistaken identity. You know, when they, this is a kind of interesting thing to think about, for me anyway. You know, when I first came to the practice, I got very inspired by the, by the, the mapping, the, the Buddhist cosmology, the way that the teachings were mapped out as uh, the progress of one's practice, the so-called progress of insight, and how if one went through the progress of insight, through the mind training, then you would, uh, you would have the potential to experience uh, awakening, enlightenment, and that you know, I have absolute confidence in that map to this day, but the way it was mapped, the way I understood the map, uh, were the map was fine, but the way I understood it was completely distorted. I thought that when you experience the first stage of enlightenment, it's called sotipana, stream enter, that somehow you, the me that I imagine myself to be, becomes the stream enterer. I become the enlightened person. And then I become a, I become a, a, a second stage. It's called Sakadagami. The, uh, I forgot what the translation is. But then there's the once returner. Sakadagami, Anagami. And then finally the Arhat. And from the vantage point of ego, a person who has gotten, had these experiences becomes this thing. And they say, you know, we describe each other, you're an arhat, you're an asatagami, you're an... And as though it's the person. When in fact, the stream enterer, if you want looks more deeply into the teaching, the, the, um, the sotipana, the stream enterer, the first stage of enlightenment, it's a completely non, it, it's the, the first teaching is you realize that none of it is personal, that it's, that it's non-self. And it's not somebody that becomes enlightened. It bec- it's that that person's mind stream is no longer under the confusion that it belongs to anybody. Exactly the opposite of this identity, I'm a stream enter. And it's said that it's not really about being somebody, it's really about the, the fetters in the mind, the tendencies of mind that keep us bound in these cases of mistaken identity, that they slowly melt away. The second one is the, uh, the how much identity gets built on, on rites and rituals. That's the other thing that falls away, that you realize that, that the, the stream enter, the one who is no longer, who no longer believes in the, the solidity of this self that we create in our minds, also no longer finally is able to see that, that how you bow and how you do this and all these customs and rituals have nothing to do with liberation. 
So it's another one of those identity places where we get really righteous and very, I'm a special, I'm a Buddhist. That's why I, I, so often I just say that, just remember, the Buddha was not a Buddhist. He was awake. He was awake to the emptiness of rites and rituals. Maybe their usefulness, but if you mistake that for, for liberation, you're, you're, you're just deluded. And then the last one, the, 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 or the third fetter, in each stage of enlightenment, certain fetters or tendencies of mind fade away. I'm not going to go past three tonight, just because I didn't want to talk about this the whole night. But the third fetter is the fetter of doubt. And conventionally speaking, or the general meaning of the fetter, the tendency of mind toward doubt, it usually is about doubt about there being uh, a freedom, doubt about the path. You just develop a lot of confidence that, that it's possible to awaken. But the, but the real meaning of the, the cessation of doubt, it's the cessation of the excessive dependency on the uh, identity view that plays through our mind, the, the, the excessive thinking about ourselves and self-referencing, the excessive amount of discursive thinking and thinking of ourselves as a problem to be solved, which just keeps feeding the feeling of confusion and doubt in our life. The extra excessive domination of the rational mind that unfortunately doesn't liberate anybody. It just keeps reinforcing doubt. Something has to be figured out. So that falls away for the stream enter. But that stream enter hasn't become anything. They've simply shed certain causes of suffering and, and, is a, and are able then to, to maybe experience a little bit more intimately how none of this is so personal. And then, it doesn't mean that things stop being personal, that we still have our personal lives, our unique individuality. We still have our community. We still have, our, we still have the, the, um, our family of origin. That's its own identity. We have our, our racial identity. We have our uh, ethnic identity, our religion of origin identity. We have our gender identity, our orientation identity. We have all these identities that have emerged as unique differences in this span of causes and conditions. And if we were to just say, oh, all that's empty, it wouldn't really, it wouldn't honor the unique individuality, the unique expression of our individual, individuality, which is not just alone apart from everything, but it's alone connected to communities. And I think in the, in, as part of our awakening, I think it's really, and it's, I say this a lot here, but I think it's really essential that we have in our life as a way of, of not feeding our sense of isolation, which then ends up feeding the doubt and feeds the self-view, I think we have to have places where we call them, in, you know, they call, they're called in the, in the popular now affinity groups. 
people who think like you, people who look like you, people who, come, who have a similar frame of reference, a similar background. It's really important to have affinity groups. And because there's something, when you don't feel, when you don't feel mirrored, you don't feel seen, you end up feeling more and more isolated. And so it's really important that we acknowledge and treat our identities, that I treat this, this role that I serve, that I treat it well. I treat my role in relationship to this particular affinity group. This is an affinity group. I don't know if you knew that. And I actually think that we don't really honor it. Uh, well, you do because you're here. I don't think we honor the power and the value of affinity groups. But it's in this particular affinity group, I think that, I think affinity groups are, are great for, for giving us that healthy narcissism, a sense of belonging, a sense of a little bit of home. But what's unique to this particular affinity group is that this is an affinity group where we can look at our own identities, our own uh, group identities, our own family identities, our own racial... We can look at all those identities and be willing to say, yes, you are a unique, precious example of life. You are an individual. And the inevitable part of that individuality is having these identity views. We can look at that and say, Don't stop there. Don't stop there. Look deeply at what you call yourself and what you call your group and you will see that that group that you may identify with, that individual, that individual narcissism that you may be identified with, that ultimately that identity has no ground. It has no root. It's a risky thing to say today because you could easily be accused of saying, hmm, you're just, you're not, you're, you're falling into one-legged emptiness. Emptiness, seeing everything as empty, empty without the compassion. We have to really honor our, our, uh, our affinities, our affinity groups. And I actually think that sometimes the, the, the affinity group, it becomes, it's, it becomes so, become so laden with, uh, the importance of our, our acknowledgement of our affinity that we can lose track of what is universally true. And I noticed that for a while there, my pendulum was swinging where all I could see was uh, divisions. All I could see was the importance in different people being acknowledged and the balances being st- how to, how to make this world more just and equitable. And it, it, I was obsessed with it. And in the middle of that, I, I, I was losing a little bit of the, of the, the, the Dharma, the, the part of the Dharma where we all together see through the illusion of our, of our group, the illusion of our individuality even. Uh, and if we don't go to the root of even our most cherished identities, 
we're still caught in a view of ourselves. And any view of ourselves, whether it's group or individual, is ultimately a source of insecurity and it's a, it's a source of stress. So how do we find that balance between our particular affinity group and also seeing that this, this group is empty and not having it be exclusive? Um, am I making any sense tonight? I'm making this up as I go along, so I'm, I'm not so sure. I think the place where we find that balance is that we acknowledge, yeah, we are here, this is, a, this is an affinity group. And in the Buddha's teaching, acknowledging and nurturing this particular affinity group is an equal part of uh, creating a life of a, awakening, of serving the world with, the, with your greatest possible capacity to... Uh, to both be liberated and to bring that liberated understanding to the relationships in your life, to whatever work you do, to everything, to have, have the radical social action of awakening um, really take root. That, that an affinity group, the Sangha, is uh, just as important as the Buddha of awake and the Dharma of understanding the teachings and the nature of reality as it's expressing itself moment to moment. And it's the Sangha where we, this particular affinity group, where we, we can have some validation for, for what we're doing. You know, it's, I've often, I think I've, maybe every time I talk about the book that I wrote, I talk about uh, a large percentage of the people who, who bought it for their families or people who, or members of their families or their friends or people who were concerned that their families or friends couldn't really get what they were doing or thought that they had gone off the deep end or joined a cult or whatever it is and that, that by offering a non-sectarian, non-jargon book about awakening to the life of the present moment that, that it would be a, a kind of doorway uh, because it, it can easily feel like a, uh, like a Dharma desert where you, it's, just, it's just not that many people and I, more all the time with the proliferation of mindfulness but still the people who really take to heart the possibility of awakening and don't just tease out this little thing called mindfulness and just start applying it everywhere instead of what it's, it's the depth of what, it's, um, what it can unlock for, for humanity and for each individual. You need the sangha to, to, um, for that kind of support. And in the sangha, we we look at each other most often in real time. We're just here with each other in real time. And at least for me, I look upon all of you as 
I see you as this amazing expression of life. And when we sit, we, we put ourselves together in the neighborhood of experiencing ourselves. We know so much in our thinking mind and in our daylight, we know so much about ourselves, but we don't know ourselves directly so well. And Sangha is a place, or when you practice together, you experience yourself more directly. In a way that is, um, you could say, and this is, I'm borrowing this from something my wife is reading right now. You can experience yourself more, much more uh, in, the, in the feminine. Again, I'm playing with feminine, masculine here. She's reading something about the, the effect that the alphabet had on, that the alphabet, people organizing their um, language in the form of letters and words, that it, that it had the, um, that it basically um, masculinized the world, that it had far-reaching impact, and that we lost the, we lost the magical, the, the feminine, the, the intuitive, the, the depth of, of direct experience. But when we stop, Dharma people know this very well. We stop, we step beyond, what is a, a thing from Rumi? Out beyond my ideas of right doing and wrong doing. There's a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Even the idea of each other is no longer there. Something like that. I just ruined that poem. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Even the something, each other. And it's in, it's in Sangha that so easily, the reason I say it's easily taken for granted is I was saying this to the group of volunteers. This last weekend, I was leading a really large retreat. And I do a lot of large retreats, weekend retreats in Canada. And this one was, you know, over 100 people. And it was very luscious and wonderful and just a feast of, of, of sitting together. But what was also true about this particular community in Canada is they, they don't have this. They don't have really, except for a few cities, even Vancouver and many of the bigger cities, they don't have sanghas. They don't have sanghas where there's a, a kind of collective mirroring of, of that, that depth of, that direct experience, that depth of, ex, that depth of experience that, uh, that we have right here. That we, and the, the support to keep practicing. And it was so interesting in the groups. I did some group interviews according to their initials. You know, I did this group, this group. And I kept hearing over and over, my practice is flat, I'm this or that. And, and I knew they're not practi- that person's not practicing with other people. That's what keeps it alive. That's what brings it alive. 
And that's what allows us to, to have that sage on the stage. Actually, believe it or not, it's here that it, the sage on the stage part of me melts away. When I sit with you, by the time I'm connected to the body and breath, I'm no longer a sage on the stage. I'm just this, this, these elements breathing and I'm feeling the heart of cushion. Of course, sometimes the teachings will float through my mind. My little internal guru will start working. Oh, earth element depends on water for cohesion. Water, in order not to become ice or, or melt, depends on fire. Fire depends on air to, to, to increase or decrease it. So we're this, this embodiment of, of changing elements. But more often than not, I'm just quiet. And no matter how far I search, I can't find any identity. I can't find any sage on the stage. And it gives me a chance to see, and hopefully you, a chance to see, oh, when I come back to myself, to just the direct experience, to feel the elements to let those elements mingle with the space of my mind and let the space of my mind mingle with being conscious and aware and letting being conscious and aware show me that there's no identity here in real time that the story of myself is not myself in the ultimate sense the story of myself is beautiful and so inevitable considering everything that's happened to me in my life. All my affinities, all my groups, all my influences, those parents, those traumas, those, the school, the teachers, all of that that makes my story is to be respected. But none of it is right here. I can't be, in real time, I can't be reduced to any of it. Now I see that there is a difference. And Dan reminded me of this, because somebody on the retreat, I quoted the James J. Audubon, which I, which I do a lot of retreats. I said, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. I found the bird here. Just the suchness of, of my individuality. This, this, five, this five physical senses and the mental sense arising and fading in each moment. And I'm not giving rise to, in these moments, I'm not giving rise to this view about myself that I'm flawed and that I have to solve a problem and I have to get this and get that become enlightened and become unenlightened and I just have to be lucidly aware and I only have to do that this moment it's the only one I can do the last one's gone 
the next one has not yet occurred. There's only this. And here, where is that identity now? On present evidence. Where is my flaw now? Where is it? As my teacher Punjaji said, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. It's the boulders of you, all this constant rethinking re burdens our heart. So when I was rummaging through my folders tonight, see, you all are Buddhas. You know, that's been my theme this fall is celebrating the Buddha Dharma Sangha. So I talked a little bit about Sangha. But you're all Buddhas. You're all intrinsically awake. Maybe sleeping Buddhas, but more often than not, and that's why we, we awaken. We awaken to our Buddha nature. What does a Buddha know? The Dharma, the way things actually are. They know nature as it's unfolding. They also, it helps, they, they, they know teachings too because they realize how things work when you're a little bit more aware. But I was uh, rummaging through my folders and I couldn't have stumbled on a better example of, of a Buddha than the Dalai Lama. You know, and of course, we glorify the Dalai Lama, but he has nothing on us in terms of his nature. He's the, you, we have the same one. He just happens to have a, you know, from the time he was born, he was really, his Buddha nature was nurtured, and he still to this day has four, and four plus hours of, of practice in the middle of the night. You know, he gets up at two in the morning or something, practices till six, and and all he's doing is he's putting himself in the neighborhood of awakening, of what's always already awake. And then he's, he's orienting, he's inclining his mind not toward solving a problem. He's inclining his mind toward goodwill, toward being of benefit, toward, toward cultivating the wholesome qualities that are intrinsic within the nature of his mind. And so he's basically using his conceptual mind in his, some of his prayers to remind himself what's there and what, what, what he wants to, to, um, to um, what he wants to emphasize rather than the, the unwholesome qualities in the mind. He wants, to, he wants to emphasize the wholesome ones like kindness and caring and the joy of caring, the joy of compassion. It's not... To the Dalai Lama, compassion is not this painful um, quivering of the heart. It's, it's a happiness that comes from caring. It's not meant to be this heavy-duty thing. In fact, if you really look into the teachings, the, there's joy in, in, the, in loving kindness, the joy of having your mind be free of ill will. That's what it, it does, it loves. And the, with, with compassion, it's the joy of having your mind uh, free of harm, that you're not harming, you're caring. And it, with mudita, you know, sympathetic joy, it's the joy of, of being free of negativity. That's some of the old teachings. And, and equanimity, the, the joy of your mind not being caught in greed. 
and craving and passion. So I, the, I was, the, I was uh, noticing this story about the Dalai Lama. Oh, I've got three minutes left. The story about the Dalai Lama, which I've told many, many times here, but I'll paraphrase tonight, where he was in Dharamsala, India, and the former mayor of Salt Lake City was sent as an emissary to invite the Dalai Lama to, uh, to Salt Lake City because I guess they heard he was coming to the States or something. And the former mayor was walking down the streets of Dharamsala and ran into this couple. And this couple, by just some magical coincidence, were from, also from Salt Lake City. And they, and they struck up a conversation. He says, I'm going to see the Dalai Lama. Uh, I'll see, and the people said, well, I, we'd like to go see the Dalai Lama too. Uh, and so the former mayor somehow arranged for this couple to come with them, with, with them to meet the Dalai Lama. And the, so the mayor builds this whole story of going in to see the Dalai Lama and seeing all the, the bodyguards. And, and at first he was kind of cynical and and because they all laughed a lot with the Dalai Lama. It was like they were designated laughers. And, and he, you know, he's looking at them kind of. But then, all of a sudden, he noticed the Dalai Lama look over at the couple who are sitting across the way. And the Dalai Lama looks over at them. And he says to them, You are sad. And at that moment, the, the couple just both break down and start crying. And through their tears, they say that their child, I think, had just committed suicide recently. And so the Dalai Lama didn't, um, didn't sit back and be the Dalai Lama sharing teachings on the Buddha Dharma. He, he walked, he went right up to them put his hands on their face and without adding any platitudes, he just said, sad, sad, and just held them. And they cried and cried and the mayor of, San of Salt Lake City was so moved by just the, the suchness of that little interaction that it was probably the most moving experience he'd had in his whole life. And the Dalai Lama wasn't busy saying, you'll get over it, you know, time will heal. Or he just met them with complete emptiness and openness. Not busy being the Dalai Lama, just, just the heart that is there when we're free of our, our self-view. And so the, we practice so that we can meet the world with with our whole heart. But not be busy being a yogi meeting the world with your heart, just being empty, just being whole, just being enough. The sufficiency that comes from just experiencing yourself directly and a little bit less caught up in that fetter of doubt and confusion and thinking a lot about yourself, somebody who is imaginary in a way, the version of yourself that plays through your mind. And coming into contact with the real experience of yourself, which is 
fundamentally satisfactory, whole, enough. If anybody here can find something contrary to that, you tell me. If you really look on present evidence. I know you can consult your memory and find all kinds of crap about yourself. Or wonderful things about yourself. But once you use that as your resource, that's your, then you're constantly having to prove it and prove it to yourself and prove it to everybody else. When we're open, we don't have to prove anything. Nothing to be gained, nothing to be lost, and nothing missing. So truly, as Hakuin Zenji says, is anything missing now? Except, may, oh, I'm, I'm adding this, except maybe your suffering. Where is your suffering in real time? So, Sangha is where we remind ourselves. That's the uniqueness of this particular affinity group, is it's an affinity group that takes us beyond our affinity to just a direct experience of life. And then the affinity just melts away into the ocean of all of us, our shared humanity, our shared caring, our shared love, our shared skillfulness. May we all awaken. May we all be free of suffering. May we all come out of the tangle of the fetters and be free of doubt, free of the belief in it, view of ourself, belief in the in rites and rituals as the determining factor of our awakening. May all beings be liberated. And may our practice today and any of the goodness of our practice, any merit, any fruit, may our practice always be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all.